Section 37 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2, by Jefferson Davis. Part 4, Chapter 48A. Assignment of General J. E. Johnston to the command of the Army of Tennessee. Condition of his army. An offensive campaign suggested. Proposed objects to be accomplished. General Johnston's plans. Advance of Sherman. The strength of the Confederate position. General Johnston expects General Sherman to give battle at Dalton. The enemy's flank movement by way of Snake Creek Gap to Resica. Johnston falls back to Resica. Further retreat to Adairsville. General Johnston's reasons. Retreat to Cassville. Projected engagement at Kingston frustrated. Retreat beyond the Etowah River. Strong position at Altoona abandoned. Nature of the country between Marietta and Dallas. Engagements at New Hope Church. Army takes position at Kennesaw. Senator Hill's letter. Death of Lieutenant General Polk. Battle at Kennesaw Mountain. Retreat beyond the Chattahoochee. Results reviewed. Popular demand for removal of General Johnston. Reluctance to remove him. Reasons for removal. Assignment of General J.B. Hood to the command. He assumes the offensive. Battle of Peachtree Creek. Death of General W.H.T. Walker. Sherman's movement to Jonesboro. Defeat of Hardy. Evacuation of Atlanta. Sherman's inhuman order. Visit to Georgia. Suggested operations. Want of cooperation by the governor of Georgia. Conference with Generals Beauregard, Hardy, and Cobb at Augusta. Departure from original plan. General Hood's movement against the enemy's communications. Partial successes. Withdrawal of the army to Gadsden and movement against Thomas. Sherman burns Atlanta and begins his march to the sea. Vandalism. Direction of his advance. General Wheeler's opposition. His valuable service. Sherman reaches Savannah. General Hardy's command. The defenses of the city. Assault and capture of Fort McAllister. The results. Hardy evacuates Savannah. On December 16, 1863, I directed General J.E. Johnston to transfer the command of the Department of Mississippi and East Louisiana to Lieutenant General Polk and repair to Dalton, Georgia, to assume command of the Army of Tennessee, representing at that date an effective total of 43,094. My information led me to believe that the condition of that army, in all that constitutes efficiency, was satisfactory, and that the men were anxious for an opportunity to retrieve the loss of prestige sustained in the disastrous battle of Missionary Ridge. I was also informed that the enemy's forces, then occupying Chattanooga, Bridgeport, and Stevenson, with a detached force at Knoxville, were weaker in numbers than at any time since the Battle of Missionary Ridge, and that they were especially deficient in cavalry and in artillery and train horses. 
I desired, therefore, that prompt and vigorous measures be taken to enable our troops to commence active operations against the enemy as early as practicable. It was important to guard against the injurious results to the morale of the troops, which always attend a prolonged season of inactivity. But the recovery of the territory in Tennessee and Kentucky, which we had been compelled to abandon, and on the supplies of which the proper subsistence of our armies mainly depended, imperatively demanded an onward movement. I believed that by a rapid concentration of our troops between the scattered forces of the enemy, without attempting to capture his entrenched positions, we could compel him to accept a battle in the open field, and that, should we fail to draw him out of his entrenchments, we could move upon his line of communications. The Federal force at Knoxville depended mainly for support on its connection with that at Chattanooga, and both were wholly dependent on uninterrupted communication with Nashville. Could we then, by interposing our force, separate these two bodies of the enemy, and cut off his communication from Nashville to Chattanooga by destroying the railroad? Both conditions were fulfilled. Of the practicability of this movement I had little doubt. Of its expediency, if practicable, there could be none. I impressed repeatedly upon General Johnston by letter, and by officers of my staff and others sent to him by me for the purpose of putting him in possession of these views, the importance of a prompt, aggressive movement by the Army of Tennessee. The following were among the considerations presented to General Johnston at my request by Brigadier General W. N. Pendleton, Chief of Artillery of the Army of Northern Virginia, on April 16, 1864. 1. To take the enemy at disadvantage while weakened, it is believed, by sending troops to Virginia, and having others still absent on furlough. 2. To break up his plans, by anticipating and frustrating his combinations. 3. So to press him in his present position as to prevent his heavier massing in Virginia. 4. To defeat him in battle, and gain great consequent strength in supplies, men, and productive territory. 5. To prevent the waste of the army incident to inactivity. 6. To inspirit the troops and the country by success, and to discourage the enemy. 7. To obviate the necessity of falling back, which might probably occur if our antagonist be allowed to consummate his plans without molestation. General Johnston cordially approved of an aggressive movement, and informed me of his purpose to make it as soon as reinforcements and supplies, then on the way, should reach him. He did not approve the proposed advance into Tennessee. He believed that the Federal forces in Tennessee were not weaker, but if anything, stronger than at Missionary Ridge that defeat beyond the Tennessee would probably prove ruinous to us, resulting in the loss of his army, the occupation of Georgia by the enemy, the piercing of the Confederacy in its vitals, and the loss of all the southwestern territory. He proposed, therefore, to stand on the defensive until strengthened, to watch, prepare, and strike as soon as possible. As soon as reinforced, he declared his purpose to advance to Ringgold, attack there, and if successful, as he expected to be, to strike at Cleveland, cut the railroad, control the river, and thus isolate East Tennessee, and as a consequence, force his antagonist to give battle on this side of the Tennessee River. Simultaneously with, and in aid of this movement, General Johnston proposed that a large cavalry force should be sent to Middle Tennessee, in the rear of the enemy, 
These operations, he thought, would result in forcing the Federal Army to evacuate the Tennessee Valley and make an advance into the heart of the state safely practicable. The irreparable loss of time in making any forward movement as desired, having sufficed for the combinations which rendered an advance across the Tennessee River no longer practicable, I took prompt measures to enable General Johnston to carry out immediately his own proposition to strike first at Ringgold and then at Cleveland, proposing that General Buckner should threaten Knoxville, General Forrest advance into or threaten Middle Tennessee, and General Roddy hold the enemy in northern Alabama, and thus prevent his concentration in our front. This movement, although it held out no such promise as did the plan of advance before the enemy had had time to make his combinations, might have been attended with good results had it been promptly executed, but no such movement was made or even attempted. General Johnston's belief that General Grant would be ready to assume the offensive before he could be prepared to do so proved too well founded, while his purpose, if the Federal Army did not attack, that we should prepare and take the initiative ourselves was never carried out. Footnote 105. It was during this time, that is, in March and April 1864, that Forrest made his extraordinary expedition from North Mississippi across Tennessee to Paducah, Kentucky, and continued his operations against depots of supplies, lines of communication, and troops moving to reinforce Sherman, having on June 11th a severe action in Tishomingo with a force estimated at eight or 9,000, supposed to be on their way to join Sherman. The energy, strategy, and high purposes of Forrest during all this period certainly entitle him to higher military rank than that of a partisan and enroll him in the list of great cavalry commanders. Some of his other expeditions are elsewhere mentioned in these pages. On the morning of May 2nd, 1864, General Johnston discovered that the enemy under the command of General Sherman was advancing against him, and two days subsequently it was reported that he had reached Ringgold, about 15 miles north of Dalton, in considerable force. At this date, the official returns show that the effective strength of the Army of Tennessee, counting the troops actually in position at Dalton and those in the immediate rear of that place, was about 50,000. When to these is added General Polk's command, then en route, and the advance of which joined him at Resica, the effective strength of General Johnston's army was not less than 68,620 men of all arms, excluding from the estimate the thousands of men employed on extra duty, amounting, as General Hood states, to 10,000 when he assumed command of the army. Army at Dalton, May 1, 1864, according to General Johnston's estimates, 37,652 infantry, 2,812 artillery, 2,392 cavalry. Mercer's Brigade joined May 2nd, 2,000 infantry, 37th Mississippi Regiment en route, 400 infantry. DeBrill's and Harrison's brigades in rear, recruiting their horses, 2,336 cavalry. Martin's division at Cartersville, 1,700 cavalry. Subtotal, 49,292. Polk's command, 19,330. Total effective, 68,620. To enable General Johnston to repulse the hostile advance and assume the offensive, no effort was spared on the part of the government. Almost all the available military strength of the South and West in men and supplies was pressed forward and placed at his disposal. 
the supplies of the commissary quartermaster and ordnance departments of his army were represented as ample and suitably located the troops encouraged by the large accessions of strength which they saw arriving daily and which they knew were marching rapidly to their support were eager to advance and confident in their power to achieve victory and recover the territory which they had lost their position was such as to warrant the confident expectation of successful resistance at least long mountain ranges penetrated by few and difficult roads and paths and deep and wide rivers seemed to render our position one from which we could not be dislodged or turned while that of the enemy dependent for his supplies upon a single line of railroad from nashville to the point where he was operating was manifestly perilous the whole country shared the hope which the government entertained that a decisive victory would soon be won in the mountains of georgia which would free the south and west from invasion would open to our occupation and the support of our armies the productive territory of tennessee and kentucky and so recruit our army in the west as to render it impracticable for the enemy to accumulate additional forces in virginia on may sixth the confederate forces were in position in and near dalton which point general johnston believed that general sherman would attack with his whole force this belief seems to have been held by general johnston until the evening of may twelfth when having previously learned the proximity of the advance of lieutenant general polk's command and that the rest of his troops were hurrying forward to reinforce him but discovering that the main body of sherman's army was moving round his left flank by way of snake creek gap to resica under cover of rocky face mountain he withdrew his troops from dalton and fell back on resica situated on the western and atlantic railroad eighteen miles south of dalton on a peninsula formed by the junction of the ostanola and conasoga rivers the confederate position at this place was strengthened by continuous rifle pits and strong field works by which it was protected on the flanks on the above-named rivers and a line of retreat across the ostanola secured information on may fifteenth that the right of the federal army was crossing the ostanola near calhoun four miles south of resica thus threatening his line of communications induced general johnston to fall back from resica toward adairsville thirteen miles south on the railroad general johnston in accounting for his abandonment of his strong position at dalton and of his subsequent position at resica states that he was dislodged from the first position that in front of dalton by general sherman's movement to his right through snake creek gap threatening our line of communication at resica and from the position taken at resica to meet that movement by a similar one on the part of the federal general toward calhoun the second being covered by the river as the first had been by the mountains after abandoning resica general johnston hoped to find a good position near calhoun but finding none he fell back to a position about a mile north of adairsville where the valley of the othcaloga was supposed from the map to be so narrow that his army formed in line of battle across it could hold the heights on both flanks on reaching this point however it was found that the valley was so much broader than was supposed that the army in line of battle could not obtain the anticipated advantage of ground hence a further retreat to cassville was ordered seventeen miles farther south and a few miles to the east of the railroad here supposing that the federal army would divide one column following the railroad through kingston and the other the direct road to the etowah railroad bridge through cassville 
General Johnston hoped that the opportunity would be offered him to engage and defeat one of the enemy's columns before it could receive aid from the other, and as the distance between them would be greatest at Kingston, he determined to attack at this point. The coming battle was announced in orders to each regiment of the army. The battle, for causes which were the subject of dispute, did not take place as General Johnston had originally announced, and instead of his attacking the divided columns of the enemy, the united Federal army was preparing to attack him. Here our army occupied a position which General Johnston describes as the best he saw during the war, but owing, as he represents, to an expressed want of confidence on the part of Lieutenant Generals Hood and Polk in their ability to resist the enemy, the army was again, May 19, 1864, ordered to retreat beyond the Etowah. General Hood, in his official report, and in a book written by him since the war, takes a very different view of the position in rear of Cassville, and states that he and General Polk explained that their corps were on ground commanded and enfiladed by the batteries of the enemy, therefore wholly unsuited for defense, and unless it was proposed to attack, that the position should be abandoned. General Shoup, a scientific and gallant soldier, confirms this opinion of the defects of the position, as does Captain Morris, chief engineer of the Army of Mississippi, and others then on duty there. The next stand of our army was at Altoona, in the Etowah Mountains, and south of the river of that name. But the reported extension of the Federal Army toward Dallas, threatening Marietta, was deemed to necessitate the evacuation of that strong position. The country between Dallas and Marietta, eighteen miles wide, and lying in a due westerly direction from the latter place, constitutes a natural fortress of exceptional strength. Densely wooded, traversed by ranges of steep hills, seamed at intervals by ravines both deep and rugged, with very few roads, and those ill-constructed and almost impassable to wheels, it is difficult to imagine a country better adapted for defense, where the advantages of numerical superiority in an invading army were more thoroughly neutralized, or where, necessarily ignorant of the topography, it was compelled to advance with greater caution. The engagements at New Hope Church, June 27th and 28th, though severe and marked by many acts of gallantry, did not result in any advantage to our army. Falling back slowly as the enemy advanced to Ackworth, June 8th, General Johnston made his next stand in that mountainous country that lies between Ackworth and Marietta, remarkable for the three clearly defined eminences, Kennesaw Mountain to the west of the railroad and overlooking Marietta, Lost Mountain halfway between Kennesaw and Dallas and west of Marietta, and Pine Mountain about half a mile farther to the north, forming as it were the apex of a triangle, of which Kennesaw and Lost Mountains form the base. These heights are connected by ranges of lower heights, intersected by numerous ravines and thickly wooded. The right of our army rested on the railroad, the line extending four or five miles in a westerly direction, protected by strong earthworks with abates on every avenue of approach. While the enemy, feeling his way slowly, was skirmishing on the right of our position, our army, our country, and mankind at large sustained an irreparable loss on June 13th in the death of that noble Christian and soldier, Lieutenant General Polk. 
having accompanied Generals Johnston and Hardy to the Confederate outpost on Pine Mountain, in order to acquaint himself more thoroughly with the nature of the ground in front of the position held by his corps. He was killed by a shot from a Federal battery six or seven hundred yards distant, which struck him in the chest, passing from left to right. Since the calamitous fall of General Albert Sidney Johnston at Shiloh and of General T.J. Jackson at Chancellorsville, the country sustained no heavier blow than in the death of General Polk. On June 18th, heavy rains having swollen Noses Creek on the left of our position, so that it became impassable, the Federal Army, under cover of this stream, extended its line several miles beyond Johnston's left flank toward the Chattahoochee causing a further retrograde movement by a portion of his force. For several days, brisk fighting occurred at various points of our line. The cavalry attack on Wheeler's force on the 20th, the attack upon Hardy's position on the 24th, and the general assault upon the Confederate position on the 27th were firmly met and handsomely repulsed. On the 4th of July, it having been reported by General G.W. Smith, in command of about a thousand militia, and occupying the extreme left of our army, that the enemy's cavalry was pressing him in such force that he would be compelled to abandon the ground he had been holding and retire before morning to General Shoup's line of redoubts constructed on the high ground near the Chattahoochee and covering the approaches to the railroad bridge and Turner's Ferry. General Johnston deemed it necessary to abandon his position at Kennesaw on July 5th and fall back to the line constructed by General Shoup as the enemy's position covered one of the main roads to Atlanta and was nearer to that city than the main body of General Johnston's force. On the ninth, Sherman having crossed the Chattahoochee with two corps on the day previous, the Confederate army crossed that river and established itself two miles in its rear. Thus from Dalton to Resica, from Resica to Adairsville, from Adairsville to Altoona, involving by the evacuation of kingston the loss of rome with its valuable mills foundries and large quantities of military stores from altoona to kennesaw from kennesaw to the chattahoochee and then to atlanta retreat followed retreat during seventy-four days of anxious hope and bitter disappointment until at last the army of tennessee fell back within the fortifications of atlanta the federal army soon occupied the arc of a circle extending from the railroad between atlanta and the chattahoochee river to some miles south of the georgia railroad from atlanta to augusta in a direction north and northeast of atlanta we had suffered a disastrous loss of territory whether the superior numerical strength of the enemy by enabling him to extend his force beyond the flank of ours did thereby necessitate the abandonment of every position taken by our army and whether the enemy declining to assault any of our entrenched camps would have ventured to leave it in rear upon his only line of communication and supply or whether we might have obtained more advantageous results by a vigorous and determined effort to attack him in detail during some of his many flank movements are questions upon which there has been a decided conflict of opinion and upon which it would be for me now neither useful nor pleasant to enter when it became known that the army of tennessee had been successfully driven from one strong position to another until finally it had reached the earthworks constructed for the exterior defense of atlanta the popular disappointment was extreme 
the possible fall of the gate city with its important railroad communication vast stores factories for the manufacture of all sorts of military supplies rolling mill and foundries was now contemplated for the first time at its full value and produced intense anxiety far and wide from many quarters including such as had most urged his assignment came delegations petitions and letters urging me to remove general johnston from the command of the army and assign that important trust to some officer who would resolutely hold and defend atlanta while sharing in the keen sense of disappointment at the failure of the campaign which pervaded the whole country i was perhaps more apprehensive than others of the disasters likely to result from it because i was in a position to estimate more accurately their probable extent on the railroads threatened with destruction the armies then fighting the main battles of the war in virginia had for some time to a great degree depended for indispensable supplies yet i did not respond to the wishes of those who came in hottest haste for the removal of general johnston for here again more fully than many others i realized how serious it was to change commanders in the presence of the enemy this clamor for his removal commenced immediately after it became known that the army had fallen back from dalton and it gathered volume with each remove toward atlanta still i resisted the steadily increasing pressure which was brought to bear to induce me to revoke his assignment and only issue the order relieving him from command when i became satisfied that his declared purpose to occupy the works at atlanta with militia levies and withdraw his army into the open country for freer operations would inevitably result in the loss of that important point and where the retreat would cease could not be foretold if the army of tennessee was found to be unable to hold positions of great strength like those at dalton resica etowah kennesaw and on the chattahoochee i could not reasonably hope that it would be more successful in the plains below atlanta where it would find neither natural nor artificial advantages of position as soon as the secretary of war showed me the answer which he had just received in reply to his telegram to general johnston requesting positive information as to the general's plans and purposes i gave my permission to issue the order relieving general johnston and directing him to turn over to general hood the command of the army of tennessee i was so fully aware of the danger of changing commanders of an army while actively engaged with the enemy that i only overcame the objection in view of an emergency and in the hope that the impending danger of the loss of atlanta might be averted the following extracts are made from a letter of the hon benjamin h hill of georgia written at atlanta october twelfth eighteen seventy eight and handed to me by the friend to whom it was addressed on wednesday or thursday i think the twenty eighth or twenty ninth of june eighteen sixty four a messenger came to my house sent as he said by general johnston senator wigful of texas and governor brown of georgia the purpose of his mission as he explained was to persuade me to write a letter to president davis urging him to order either morgan or forrest with five thousand men into sherman's rear etc the result of this interview was a determination on my part to go at once to see general johnston and place myself at his service i reached his headquarters near marietta on the line of the kennesaw on friday morning which was the last day of june or the first day of july we had a full and free interview and i placed myself unreservedly at his disposal 
he explained at length that he could not attack general sherman's army in their entrenchments nor could he prevent sherman from ditching round his johnson's flank and compelling his retreat the only method of arresting sherman's advance was to send a force into his rear cut off his supplies and thus compel sherman either to give battle on his johnston's terms or retreat in either case he thought he could defeat sherman and probably destroy his army i said to him as you do not propose to attack general sherman in his entrenchments could you not spare a sufficient number of your present army under wheeler or some other to accomplish this work he said he could not that he needed all the force he had in front he then said that general morgan was at arlington virginia with five thousand cavalry and if the president would so order this force could be sent into sherman's rear at once he also said that stephen d lee had sixteen thousand men under him in mississippi including the troops under forrest and roddy and that if morgan could not be sent five thousand of those under forrest could do the work either morgan or forrest with five thousand men could compel sherman to fight at a disadvantage or retreat and there was no reason why either should not be sent if the president should give the order he explained that he general johnston had had a consultation with senator wigfall and governor brown the result of which was the messenger to me to secure my cooperation to influence president davis to make the order i repelled the idea that any influence with the president was needed and stated that if the facts were as general johnston reported them the reinforcement would be sent on his request but the situation was so critical involving as i believed and explained at length to general johnston the fate of the confederacy that i said i would go in person to richmond and lay all the facts before the president and i did not doubt he would act promptly i then said to general johnston how long can you hold sherman north of the chattahoochee river this is important because i must go to richmond and morgan must go from virginia or forrest from mississippi and this will take some time and all must be done before sherman drives you to atlanta general johnston did not answer this question with directness but gave me data which authorized me to conclude that he could hold sherman north of the chattahoochee river at least fifty-four days and perhaps sixty days i made this calculation with general johnston's data in his presence and told him the result and he assented to it when this result was stated general hood who was present said mr hill when we leave our present line we will in my judgment cross the chattahoochee river very rapidly why what makes you think that said general johnston with some interest because answered general hood this line of the kennesaw is the strongest line we can get in this country if we surrender it to sherman he can reconnoiter from its summit the whole country between here and atlanta and there is no such line of defense in the distance i differ with your conclusion said general johnston i admit this is a strong line of defense but i have two more strong lines between this and the river from which i can hold sherman a long time i was delayed en route somewhat and reached richmond on sunday morning week 
which I think was the ninth day of July. I went to the hotel, and in a few moments was at the executive mansion. This interview with Mr. Davis I can never forget. I laid before him carefully and in detail all the facts elicited in the conversation with General Johnston, and explained fully the purpose of my mission. When I had gone through, the President took up the facts one by one, and fully explained the situation. I remember very distinctly many of the facts, for the manner as well as the matter stated by Mr. Davis was impressive. Long ago, said the President, I ordered Morgan to make this movement upon Sherman's rear, and suggested that his best plan was to go directly from Abington through East Tennessee. But Morgan insisted that if he were permitted to go through Kentucky and around Nashville, he could greatly recruit his horses and his men by volunteers. I yielded and allowed him to have his own way. He undertook it, but was defeated, and has retreated back, and is now at Abington with only 1,800 men, very much demoralized and badly provided with horses. He next read a dispatch from General Stephen D. Lee, to the effect that A. J. Smith had left Memphis with 15,000 men, intended either as a reinforcement for Sherman or for an attack on Mobile, that to meet this force he, Lee, had only 7,000 men, including the commands of Forrest and Roddy. He would like to have reinforcements, but anyhow, with or without reinforcements, he should meet Smith and whip him too. Ah, there is a man for you, said Mr. Davis, and he did meet Smith with his inferior force, and whipped him too. He next read a dispatch from a commander at Mobile, who I think was General Maury, to the effect that Canby was marching from New Orleans with 20,000 men, and A.J. Smith from Memphis with 15,000, intending to make a combined attack on Mobile. To meet this force of 35,000 men, he had 4,000, and Lee with Forrest and Roddy, 7,000, making 11,000 in all. He asked for reinforcements. After going fully through this matter, and showing how utterly General Johnston was at fault as to the number of troops in the different commands, the President said, How long did you understand General Johnston to say he could hold Sherman north of the Chattahoochee River? From 54 to 60 days, I said, and repeated the facts on that subject as above stated. Thereupon the President read me a dispatch from General Johnston, announcing that he had crossed or was crossing the Chattahoochee River. The next day, Monday, Mr. Seddon, the Secretary of War, called to see me. He asked me to reduce my interview with General Johnston to writing, for the use of the Cabinet, and I did so, and gave it to him. Mr. Seddon said he was anxious for General Johnston's removal, and he was especially anxious because, he said, he was one of those who was responsible for his appointment. He had urged his appointment very earnestly, but it was a great mistake, and he desired to do all he could, even at this late day, to atone for it. The President, he said, was averse to the removal. He made the appointment against his own convictions but thought it a very hazardous thing to remove him now, and he would not do it if he could have any assurance that General Johnston would not surrender Atlanta without a battle. Other members of the Cabinet, I know, had views similar to those expressed by Mr. Seddon. 
the question or rather the situation was referred to general lee but he declined to give any positive advice and expressed regret that so grave a movement as the removal of general johnston under the circumstances existing should be found to be necessary footnote 109 mr seddon ex-secretary of war in a letter written to me on the tenth of february eighteen seventy nine states in regard to his interview with general lee that it was held after the determination had been made to remove general johnston from his command at atlanta and says of the purpose of the interview with general lee it was designed merely to secure general lee's estimate of qualifications in the selection of a successor for the command during all the time a telegraphic correspondence was kept up with general johnston the object being to ascertain if he would make a determined fight to save atlanta his answers were thought to be evasive finally the question was put to general johnston categorically to this effect will you surrender atlanta without a fight to this the answer was regarded as not only evasive but as indicating the contemplated contingency of surrendering atlanta on the ground that the governor of the state had not furnished as expected sufficient state troops to man the city while the army was giving battle outside this evasive answer to a positive inquiry said one of the cabinet to me brought the president over he yielded very reluctantly i was informed of the result at once and was also informed that mr davis was the last man in the cabinet to agree to the order of removal general hood assumed command on the eighteenth of july in his report of the operations of the army while under his command he states that the effective strength of his force on that day was forty eight thousand seven hundred and fifty men of all arms feeling that the only chance of holding atlanta consisted in assuming the offensive by forcing the enemy to accept battle general hood determined on the twentieth of july to attack the corps of generals thomas and schofield who were in the act of crossing peachtree creek hoping to defeat thomas before he could fortify himself then to fall on schofield and finally to attack mcpherson's corps which had reached decatur on the georgia railroad driving the enemy back to the creek and into the narrow space included between that stream and the chattahoochee river owing to an unfortunate misapprehension of the order of battle and the consequent delay in making the attack the movement failed on the twenty first finding that mcpherson's corps was threatening his communications general hood resolved to attack him at or near decatur in front and on flank turn his left and then following up the movement from the right to the left with his whole army force the enemy down peachtree creek this engagement was the hottest of the campaign but it failed to accomplish any other favorable result than to check general mcpherson's movement upon the communications of our army while it cost heavily in the loss of many officers and men foremost among whom was that preux chevalier and accomplished soldier major general w h t walker of georgia beyond expeditions by the enemy for the most part by cavalry to destroy the lines of railroad by which supplies and reinforcements could reach atlanta and successful efforts on our part to frustrate their movements resulting in the defeat and capture of general stoneman 
and his command near Macon, the utter destruction of the enemy's cavalry force engaged by General Wheeler at Noonan, and the defeat of Sherman's design to unite his cavalry at the Macon and Western Railroad, and effectually destroy that essential avenue for the conveyance of stores and ammunition for our army, no movement of special importance took place between July 22nd and August 26th, at which latter date it was discovered that Sherman had abandoned his works upon our right, and leaving a considerable force to hold his entrenched position at the railroad bridge over the Chattahoochee, he was marching his main body to the south and southwest of Atlanta, to use it, as he himself has expressed it, against the communications of Atlanta, instead of against its entrenchments. On the 30th, it being known that he was moving on Jonesboro, the county town of Clayton County, about twenty miles south of Atlanta, General Hood sent two corps under General Hardy to confront him at that point, in the hope that he could drive him across Flint River, oblige him to abandon his works on the left, and then be able to attack him successfully in flank. The attack at Jonesboro was unsuccessful. General Hardy was obliged on September 1st to fall back to Lovejoy's, seven miles south of Jonesboro, on the Macon and Western Railroad. Thus the main body of the Federal Army was between Hardy and Atlanta, and the immediate evacuation of that city became a necessity. There was an additional and cogent reason for that movement. Owing to the obstinately cruel policy which the United States government had pursued for some time of refusing on any terms to exchange prisoners of war, upward of 30,000 prisoners were at Andersonville in southwestern Georgia at this time. To guard against the release and arming of these prisoners, General Hood thought it necessary to place our army between them and the enemy, and abandon the project, which he thought feasible, of moving on Sherman's communications and destroying his depots of supplies at Marietta. End of section 37